The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 56 of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be exploring the case of Matthew Dane, a 19-year-old Air Force serviceman who was shot to death in 1986 before his body was discarded in an out-of-the-way area outside of Las Vegas. An arrest would come soon after his murder, but it wouldn't lead to a conviction. We'll jump into this case after some quick housekeeping. I'm battling a cold, so please forgive me if my voice sounds a little rough. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the podcast too, and invite them to listen. With your help, the show can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard on regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Annie and Theodore Katz, as well as Jennifer Bardwell. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate and help keep the show growing and improving. One last note. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Matthew Lee Dane, known to family and friends as Matt, was born on July 10, 1967, in Frederickstown, Missouri. He has an older brother, Mitch, and a younger sister, Jody. Matt's father, Gary Dane, was an accountant for the St. Joe Minerals Corporation and his mother, a stay-at-home mom. Today, his parents have been married for almost 60 years. A happy and close family for sure. But for the last 34 years, Matt's family hasn't been whole. Not since Matt's brutal 1986 murder. Matt grew up in Viburnum, Missouri, a small community in the Ozark Mountains, about 100 miles southwest of St. Louis. He graduated from Verburnum High School in 1985 and shortly after enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. After graduating boot camp, Matt was stationed at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. 
It's September 1985. Matt loved the outdoors, so Las Vegas seemed to be the ideal place for him to live. His ambition was to become a forestry ranger, according to his family. On September 6, 1985, Matt registered three guns with the 554th SPS Armory on Nellis Air Force Base, a 12-gauge Browning shotgun, a 22 caliber Ruger rifle, and a 243 caliber Remington rifle. A few months later, on May 17, 1986, Matt, who was then 19 years old, married Sally Ann Adams in Sally's hometown of Salem, Missouri, roughly 35 miles from his home in Viburnum. After his marriage to Sally, the couple returned to Las Vegas and moved into an off-base apartment. The future was looking great for the young newlyweds. Matt and Sally were both skilled with firearms and often went target shooting together in the desert. On June 2, 1986, Matt arrived at the 554th SPS Armory on Nellis Air Force Base to report to military personnel that he was now married and he requested custody of his weapons so he could store them in his apartment off base. On September 8, 1986, the Las Vegas Police Department received a phone call at 1400 hours or 2 p.m. stating two civilian hikers had found the deceased body of a white male on Champion Road in the Mount Charleston Deer Creek Canyon area north of Highway 158. This was 40 miles from Las Vegas. The body was identified as Matt Lee Danes. An examination revealed that Matt had been shot six times with a 22 caliber rifle, three shots in the chest, and the rest in his back and left side. Matt was tentatively identified by his military active duty ID card, and later positively identified through dental and military records. Dr. Chase, the medical examiner, couldn't provide the time of death but he did confirm that Matt had expended 22 caliber bullets recovered from his body, and the bullets were released to the Las Vegas Police Department. None of Matt's guns were found where his body was located, and police said it was possible that Matt was killed in another location and then dumped in Mount Charleston. On September 15, 1986, seven days after Matt's murder, hikers found two weapons a little over four miles from where Matt's body was found. Checks with the National Crime Information Center system determined the weapons belonged to Matt Lee Dane. Less than a month later, on October 3, 1986, Las Vegas Police Department's criminal lab conducted a gun analysis, which concluded the weapons found belonging to Matt and the projectiles recovered from his body matched, proving that Matt Dane was killed with his own 22 caliber rifle. When questioned by Las Vegas PD, Matt's widow Sally said that she and Matt awoke early on Sunday, September 7th, and attended the 11 a.m. church service at the Trinity Temple Center. Afterwards, they went home to change clothes before heading to Long John Silver's on Charleston Boulevard. The couple then proceeded to the Mount Charleston ski area, arriving around 1.30 to 2 p.m., and they stayed for approximately an hour to an hour and a half. According to Sally, the pair then drove back to Las Vegas and stopped by a 7-Eleven convenience store at the intersection of Nellis and Charleston Boulevards at around 4 p.m., Sally claims that Matt went in to pay for gas, and when he came out, he told her he was going target shooting with a person he just met in the store. According to Sally, Matt retrieved his guns from the trunk of their vehicle and placed them into the stranger's vehicle before leaving with the unknown person. When police asked Sally about the unidentified person's vehicle, she claimed she couldn't recall the make or color of it, nor did she actually see the person her husband was going shooting with. According to a friend of the family, Sally gave a slightly different story to the Air Force Office of Special Investigation, 
She told agents that she and Matt left Las Vegas on September 7th at 6.45 p.m. and had breakfast at 8 a.m. in Mount Charleston. They left Mount Charleston at 11.45 a.m. and arrived at the 7-Eleven at 1 p.m., three hours earlier than what she told Las Vegas PD. Detectives acquired Matt and Sally's home phone records and discovered that a 14-minute call was made at 1.05 p.m. on September 7th, the day of the murder. Matt's parents later confirmed that Matt was speaking to them at that time. It was also verified that Matt definitely attended the 11 a.m. church services at Trinity Temple Church. Matthew Dane couldn't have been at Mount Charleston at 11.45 a.m. or arrived back at Las Vegas at 1 p.m. To top it off, detectives also discovered that a white female placed a call at 6.46 a.m. on the day Matt's body was found to the Mount Charleston Forest Park Rangers emergency line. The ranger advised the caller to call back on the business line, which she did at 6.47 a.m., and this time she asked if any accidents had been reported. By October 13, 1986, the Las Vegas Police Department had compared fingerprints. Two sets of fingerprints were found on the 22 caliber rifle. One belonged to Matt Dane. The other belonged to his wife, Sally Dane. After Matt's death, Sally immediately filed a claim on Matt's life insurance policy. On October 22, 1986, the death benefit of more than $50,000 was paid out to Sally Dane, even though Matt's case was unsolved. A few months later, on January 2, 1987, Las Vegas authorities obtained a warrant for Sally Dane's arrest, but at the time she was in Evansville, Indiana. Authorities contacted the sheriff's department there, and on January 8th, Sally Ann Dane was arrested on open murder charges. Sally posted a $100,000 bond shortly after her arrest and stayed with a friend named Mickey Davis while in Evansville. Mickey told the local media that Sally was ready to appear in court Monday and emotionally prepared. Her preliminary hearing was originally scheduled for Monday, January 12th, but it was rescheduled to June 19th because her defense attorney was involved in a federal court case the same day. Continuances delayed the trial between January 1987 and September 1988. That month, a second grand jury failed to return indictment. As a result, Matt Dane's widow walked free, and there's never been another arrest or any real suspects in Matt's case, and today the case remains unsolved. Following her arrest, Sally Dane cut off contact with Matt's family and later remarried. Today, more than three decades after Matthew Dane's body was found discarded in Nevada, his family is still searching for justice. Matt's sister Jody joined me to discuss her brother's life and his case, as well as the frustrating aftermath of his murder. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. I want to tell you about our sponsor, one that you've heard me rave about. Best Fiends. Most of you know that true crime is my passion, but even someone like me needs a break from it every once in a while. So when I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a fun game that has a great puzzle-solving aspect to it and an ongoing story that unfolds as you play. And what I really like about Best Fiends is that the game really stimulates your brain and can be played casually. It's got a great-looking design and bright, bold colors. I'm still competing against my wife. She's on level 124. I just crossed 100, and I can't seem to catch her. But I'm getting closer and having a lot of fun in the process, and I try to play every day. You can collect lots of different characters that are strategically used for each level. What's great is that you don't even need internet to play, so it's perfect while traveling. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. 
That's friends without the R. Best beans. Our next sponsor is BetterHelp. Is there something interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can now get help on your time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video and phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Licensed professional counselors are available who are specialized in anger issues, depression, stress, anxiety, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential. If you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. There are 3,000 licensed therapists across the 50 United States, and BetterHelp is available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. BetterHelp is available on desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, but it is secure, convenient, and professional. And financial aid is available for those who qualify. If you're a regular listener of the Murder My Family, then you know that sometimes we all have a lot to deal with. And BetterHelp can get you through those times. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. The Murder My Family listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code FAMILY. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com family. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you love. That's BetterHelp.com family. Hi, Jody, and thanks for coming on to discuss your brother Matt's case with us today. Thank you. Good morning. You've been searching for justice for Matt since since his death in 1986. How tough a road has this been for you and your family in all these years? Um, pretty tough. Some days are obviously better than others. We've chosen to move forward. We're not going to, you know, let this uh, rob us of joy and rob us of a, of a good life. But it's it's tough. It's crazy after. 34 years, you can still miss someone so intensely. And I think some of that is just not having the, the closure. And you mentioned that 34 years with, without your brother. What kind of things are, are you missing about him? Well, you know, my brother, my other brother, Mitch, and I have moved on. We've got kids. We've got grandkids. We all live in very close proximity to our parents. Our parents are both still alive and basically healthy. We uh, we hunt fish together. We have holidays together. We laugh together, um, you know, and there's just always a hole. There's always a piece of us that's missing. And, and before we get into the actual case and, and the murder itself, can you tell us a little bit about Matt and uh, maybe what kind of person he was or maybe share some of your memories of him? You know, Matt was just a fun kid. He was a middle child, so I probably fought with him more than my older brother. My older brother fought with him more than me, um, but we were all really close. We had kind of a, I call it a Mayberry-type childhood. We we lived in a little bitty town, and um, we, you know, every every afternoon was spent together outside. We had beagles, and we used to have beagle puppies, and we, we just... Um, his his main thing in his whole life was hunting and fishing. He was a very avid outdoorsman. He was uh, an entrepreneur from the time he was a little kid. He would he was very mechanical always, so he would fix other kids' bikes 
and charge them for it. And so he always had some money. He always had more money than me and my brother had. He would, you know, get out and work for people and just go drum up business however he could. And uh, just just a lot of fun. He was never in any trouble in school, never never at all, a, you know, a, a worry or a bother. He was just a really all-around good, fun kid. So it sounds like he, he really enjoyed himself, but he also found time to, to hang out with family and, and be close with you guys. Absolutely. After high school, Matt joined the Air Force and served his country. Was that something he was particularly proud of or excited about doing? He was. He really wanted, um, He, like I said, he was always very mechanical. And I think going into his senior year, he was not real sure what he wanted to be doing forever and ever. He knew he wanted to make good money so that he could have the money to play, basically, have the money to hunt and fish and, and have a good job so he could take time, the time off to do that, spend time with family. And um, so he got to a friend of his had joined the Air Force. And so he looked into that and decided that that might be what he wanted to do and become a aircraft mechanic. His goal um, here in Missouri, McDonnell Douglas is in St. Louis. And that was his goal. Actually, he wanted to serve his time in the country, get his uh, credentials and then come back and be a mechanic for McDonnell Douglas here in St. Louis and just be able to buy a place outside the city and hunt and fish, do what he loved. So that was a really good transitional thing for him to take what he liked and what he knew how to do and maybe parlay that into some kind of career down the road that he, that he could use. Yes, absolutely. And what rank was he, by the way? Airman first class. Okay. He'd only been in about a year and a half. He hadn't been in a real long time. He went in, of course, he graduated in 1985. He got out of school about a month early. They got him an early entry date. And so he had plenty of credits to go ahead and graduate. So he worked out. He didn't actually walk in his graduation, but he left school in May as a graduate and entered the service. He was only 17 at the time. And, of course, he was killed when he was 19. So he only actually served um, from, like, May of 85 to September of 86 at the time of his death. So he hadn't been in a real long time. And during that time, he, I think it was May, 1986, uh, just a few months before he was murdered, he married a woman named Sally Adams. Um, how long, he did. How long did, did Matt and date uh, Sally before they got married? And did your family know her well? We knew her well. We loved her. Absolutely. We're tickled to death. We were raised in the Assemblies of God churches, and Matt and Sally met um, before his senior year. So it would have been in 1984. They met at church camp and um, dated for about a year until he left for the service. And they actually, I think, broke up for a little while, just a long-distance thing. But then that first year when he came home at Christmas, they had been writing some letters and talking some, and they got back together, and he proposed at Christmas in 85, and then they planned a wedding and got married in 1986. We were all tickled to death, had a big, beautiful wedding, and just absolutely thrilled us all to death. And when he 
they got married, he moved from the, uh, I, I guess, the uh, airman's quarters or uh, military housing onto their own place together. Um, right, right. They rented a small apartment just there a few miles from post or from the base. And that's what they had whenever they were married. How was that transition for him? Uh, was everything fine during that time? I think he was as happy as he could be. Um, you know, he he was just completely thrilled. He he was really lonely. I recently have read over the letters um, home again, and, you know, all he could talk about was hoping, wishing that Sally was there and that they could, that somebody was there. They could be, he was lonely. He wanted to come home. You know, he he was happy to serve his country, but tough on servicemen, too, to be away from home, especially when you did have the kind of home life that we had. We were all very close, very loving, very supportive. And so he wasn't running away from anything when he went in the service. He just chose to join it, join and serve his country. And so, you know, getting home and getting back to his family was, was huge. Where was he stationed during that time when he was away? Um, when At the time of his death, death, he was at Nellis Air Force Base. Of course, he went to San Antonio, Texas for basic training. And then he went to uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, at Shepard Air Force Base for his, like, tech school. And I think that was about a 12- or 16-week thing after basic. And then at that time, you know, say about six months in, that's when he went out to Nellis in Las Vegas. And that was his his duty station, essentially, where he was to be stationed at. Yes. Yes. He worked. He was an F-16 mechanic. They call him crew chiefs, and I think at the time of his death, he was an assistant crew chief on an F-16 fighter jet. He was very proud of that. How was his life there, as far as you know, once he's he's back, he's with Sally, um, he's settled in? Um, did everything seem okay at, at the time? Um, it, it did. We didn't know anything was really going on until a couple of months in. My parents and I and Sally's parents actually took a trip in an RV to Las Vegas to visit, just took off to go see them. And um, when we got there, we immediately realized that things were not good. Um, And Sally wanted to come home. She wanted to be, she didn't like, she wasn't adjusting. She was also from a good Christian loving family and, she wasn't adjusting well to being away. Was it just being a wife in general, do you think, or being a military wife with all that they have to you know, endure? You know, Mike, I was young. I, and so, and my parents tried to shield me from a lot of this. I spent a lot of time laying in their pool um, that week while my parents and my brother and his wife did some, tried to do some counseling and talking through some things. But, to me, I think it was just, it really was just being away from home. If you would, take us back to September. How and when did your fi- your family find out that Matt's missing, and, and what were your initial thoughts? Well, on September 7th, that's my parents' anniversary, and um, he they had been to church, and we got home from our church service, and they called. And Matt called, called home to talk to my mom and dad. And my mom and I were there, but my dad wasn't. So we got to talk to him for a little bit. And he told us that they'd been to church 
and they were going up into the mountains to piddle around, just just look, piddle around, may do some target shooting. So they they did that, and then the the story from there. That's the last time that we had any contact with him was about three o'clock Las Vegas time on September 7th. And, um, that's the last time we had any contact with him. That's the last time that we know from Matt what happened and what had been going on in his life. And after that, we were told they went to the mountains, they did a little target shooting. They came back to Vegas, stopped in the Seven Eleven, and Matt ran into a friend no name, no description, no no visualization of that friend, no description of the vehicle, just ran into a friend, and he was going to go back up into the mountains that evening and, and see if they could see any mule deer come down. And then um, Sally went home. So this, and is, so this is all Sally's account of going out this shooting is, and then this coming This is Sally's back. account, mm-hmm. yes. And, and she claims that after they got done shooting, they came back, they, they go to the Seven Eleven uh, convenience store. Um, it, did anyone there report seeing Matt? Uh, was anyone there confirmed? No. That, okay. So it's, no. just, it's Matt Sally was a, they that. actually They actually state Matt was not in the store. They did have surveillance tapes. Back then it was a cassette tape that they kept for about two days. But Matt, this was a Seven Eleven just very near their house, and he was a frequent flyer, like a daily um, customer. And the interviews that I have seen say that no one saw him there that day. And at the time, there was no footage of the vehicle there in the parking lot. So it seems like as a regular customer that was in there all the time, they probably would have recognized him if they had seen him that day. It would appear that way to me. And so the the first thing you, the last time you have contact is that day. When do you find out that he's actually missing and, and how did you find out? Or did you find out that he was dead before you even found out he was missing? No, the following morning, um, his wife called my mom and said, Matt didn't come home and I don't know what to do. Um, And so my mom instructed her to call the Air Force Base and that my mom said, you know, I'm going to call my dad. I'm going to call Gary, my husband, and and I'll call you back. We'll, We'll see what we need to do. And so that's when we found out that he was missing, that he had not come home. The the next day, at some point that day, his body was found in an out of the way area. And he had been shot yes. several times. Yes. Is, several is, hours later. And, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and I was going to say, and it was that, as far as you know, is that the area where he was found? Is that the area he typically went, like, shooting in, target shooting? No, apparently not. Um, in some of the interviews, I didn't know. I knew that he went up to Mount Charleston some. There was a new lodge that was built. That was a nice area. He had talked about Mount Charleston. Um, but apparently there's a lot of like scrub brush and it's not where someone who was going to shoot rifles would go. A pistol is a little different. You, you know, you need 30 feet, but with a rifle, you need 
at least 150 yards to be able to really shoot and sight in a rifle. So, um, apparently no, I've not physically been there to the scene, but from what I'm being told and have been told, this is not where you would go shoot a rifle. He normally went to the desert. He, there were several friends who mentioned that they had been to the desert shooting with him. Knowing your brother as as well as you did, was he the type of person that would go someplace like that with someone he didn't know or didn't trust? Not that he didn't trust. I don't know. He, he didn't know many strangers. So if someone, if he struck up a conversation with someone who did seem friendly and interested in the same things, yeah, in 1986, it wouldn't surprise me for him to go somewhere with, with someone, you know, that, that wouldn't be horribly surprising to me. So that, that account that she gave initially didn't seem too bizarre. Didn't seem no, too, uh, not at all. No, well, not at all. When Matt was found dead, how soon did your family get that news? And, and how did you all react to that? We learned that um, there had been a body located by hikers. The body of a young white male had been found by hikers. Um, that had been shot to death. So we learned of that about maybe, maybe seven o'clock in the evening. And by about, and and by this time, my dad, along with Dolly's dad, were on the way to St. Louis to the airport. They were flying out there because, I mean, we'd had all day to realize, you know, Matt's missing, something's going on. Um, So my dad was on his way to St. Louis. And so my brother and I, my brother had come in from another town and we were there at home. And of course, uh, law enforcement and a very close friend, small town, showed up at our door about 9 p.m. And so my parents weren't even able to be together when they learned that. My dad was standing in the Lambert Airport when he found out that Matt had been, that's when they had, by this time they had positively identified the body. His ID was on him. His wallet was on him, and they had identified the body. And so that we did find out uh, that it was Matt for sure. And and the way that he was killed, being shot so many times, it seemed like it was very personal or uh, maybe overkill. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did what immediately came Six to your times. mind? Did you did you did you all have any ideas of oh so and so had a an issue with him? Maybe it was them or. What was your initial thinking? Uh, uh, Total stunned. Like I said, this is a kid that had never been, I mean, I think he'd had a speeding ticket, but never been in any kind of trouble. You know, I'm not diminishing anyone else's pain or loss, but this wasn't a kid that was out gangbanging and slinging dope. And, you know, he, he was just a clean cut, serviceman not he was a really good kid went by the rules played you know reported for work every day and we were just completely stunned you know who how what you know I'm thinking maybe maybe he had just come on to somebody crazy at the 7-Eleven and gone up there and 
you know, whatever, an argument took place or, you know, they, they tried to rob him and he didn't have any money. We, I mean, we just didn't know, didn't just total shock. And eventually you, you mentioned that early on, um, Sally's story didn't seem bizarre. The police didn't really, uh, seem to have any issues with it, but it, it wasn't long before the, the police started questioning Sally's account. Um, what do you know about that and, and why, and why did that happen? Well, I know it was done pretty privately. They knew how close we were and that we were, um, you know, we our, our families were very close. We were intertwined and we knew, they knew we didn't suspect her. They knew we didn't have any reason to or, or think that she could be capable of this. And I think it was probably in maybe November that detectives flew out and actually spoke with my parents and presented them some evidence, information, um, and what they were gathering and how they were feeling. And we were shocked, offended, mad. We, you know, we just, how could you even think this about her? But then as they begin to lay out the evidence and, you know, reality set in, we understood that she was the only suspect. And, you know, our family wants justice. If it's not her, good. I want to know who did it. Who did it? You know, I'd love to, I'd love for an eyewitness to come forward and say, hey, I saw that kid. I saw that guy. And he was with, you know, whoever, one of my friends. I'd love for something else to come up. But everything we have been told and shown and proven for 30, almost 34 years leads to one suspect. And every time that we call Las Vegas to talk to anyone, still one suspect. I think one of the major pieces of evidence was that Sally's fingerprints were found on Matt's gun. Uh, The guns were not found at the scene. They were actually found a few miles away. They had been discarded. There was he was shot with a twenty two and there was another gun, a shotgun. And those weapons were found a few miles away by um hikers. Again, um they were found and there were two sets of fingerprints and were hers and his. And and she can't explain that because he taught her how to shoot the guns. So, so that's not her, her That's prints, not a smoking gun, per se. Yeah, so her prints would be on there, naturally, since she admits to shooting sure. the gun. Sure. So, so, many things, so many things were just, it seems now, looking back, as we really started looking into this, a lot of things were missed. For I mean, for one thing, the Air Force paid out the life insurance, like, immediately, almost immediately. Within three days, a... a staff sergeant cleared her of any wrongdoing and and paid out the life insurance, which was unheard of. And looking at it now, there may have been a clause. She may have only been able to have gotten $3,000, but she was paid the 50. We were understanding that the 50,000 was um, for, for soldiers killed in the line of duty. And he wasn't, he was active duty, but he wasn't killed in the line of duty. I don't know. There's still we're we're speaking with the Air Force about that. 
And, and you bring up a good point. You mentioned that the Air Force is investigating it. You've got regular police investigating it. Did it seem like having multiple people digging into it was going to result in, in a resolution, result in, in an answer? Um, it, it did. You know, I think we were all just naive. We just thought, this is, they'll, they're going to take care of this. This is going to, you know, it'll go to trial and, and this will be, this will be handled. This, you know, we'll get justice for this. She was arrested eventually um, in January of 87. And I'm, like I said, I was really young. So some of the dates and details are fuzzy to me. I would have to look through the case file to be particular. But she was in jail about a week, I think, in Evansville, Indiana. That's where she came back to school. And then um, they extradited her out to Vegas. And she was there for just just a short period of time before she was bonded out. And so that's all that. You know, that's the only time she's ever spent. Yeah, so she was arrested January of 1987, just a few months after Matt was murdered. Um, yes. When the when the arrest came, did, it, did that shock you? Did you say, no, not there's no way it's Sally? Or what not, were you thinking? Not by, not by the time the arrest came. Like I said, we knew. We knew that they were going to arrest her. We had already been given the heads up. When, when Lieutenant... Um, the detectives Geary and Ziola had come to Missouri to speak with us and, and present this. They were good about that. They kind of gave us a heads up that, Hey, this is where the investigation is leading. This is where it's going and you need to sit on it and, and just be quiet and let us do our jobs. But as you know, I guess respect protocol, they did. We knew that she was going to be arrested and unfortunately, that arrest didn't lead to justice, didn't lead to a conviction. Tell, tell us what happened. No. Um, well, like I said, she spent, she was extradited out to Vegas, and she was bonded out. And then the legal stuff, you know, the lawyers got involved. And there's a lot of really political, Oscar Goodman was her attorney. Um, he's attorney in Las Vegas and he um, was her attorney. He was excellent. He defended her well. And I, I feel like some things on the prosecution end of it were kind of let, let go as we're digging into the case more. There were questions that weren't asked um, records that weren't gotten. Um, you know, phone calls that were made prior uh, after Matt's murder between Sally and her mother that were never, um, you know, never presented, never, I don't know. They're just, this, the evidence was, they said was too circumstantial. The physical evidence that was there could be explained. And so all of the evidence that they had was circumstantial. So then we went into, we're going to have a preliminary hearing. Then, no, we're going to go to a grand jury. And it actually did go before two grand juries. The first one was just, like, hung. There was no resolution. And then the second one, there was a couple of holdouts that decided there was not enough evidence for the case to go to trial. So it was just, 
dropped. I mean, there wasn't, the case has never been closed, but at the time they did have to drop charges just pending further evidence. I guess the, the, if, the, if there's a silver lining, it's since she wasn't tried and found innocent or um, acquitted, then if any new evidence surfaces, she could always be brought to trial in the future. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. There was actually her small hometown, you know, very supportive of her, but there they actually reported that she was acquitted, and that's false. She was not. And, and yeah, because unless you actually stay in trial and and, and are found right. innocent uh, or not guilty, uh, it's a big difference. Um, and and so was that like a sort of a punch in the gut for you to to see someone arrested and then it just fall apart like that? And thirty plus yes. years later, you're you're still here in the same spot. Yes, absolutely. And watch who you've been led to believe and um, what the evidence has been laid out in front of you. Watch somebody go on with their life and live this seemingly charmed life. Marry, have children, have grandchildren. Seem, it's Yeah, a punch in the gut is a good way to describe that. And I know that police... I've read in a couple different spots that police had a theory or for a motive, but they didn't release that. Are there any ideas that you have of what a motive for Matt being murdered might have been? You know, she wanted to come home. And her father apparently did tell her that, you know, the only way you're released from this marriage. And again, I go back to this extreme Christian upbringing. Assemblies of God churches, they were, you know, he was a deacon in his church. Divorce would shame this family. And you've done this, you're bound to this. And the only way out of this is if your husband is gone, because our family doesn't do divorce. And that, that was the way home. And there were, there were a lot of other circumstantial things. They came home for a visit the weekend prior to Matt's death and, you know, she insisted that they stay with us at our home as opposed to spending any time with her family. That's what that made the par- or the detectives at the time think of that there was premeditation as well, that she knew she would be home soon enough. And, and versus uh, it seems, you know, to someone that's rational and, and thinking clearly that if, if I just went out of this marriage, I just want to go home, I could just fall for divorce and go. But, you know, we're talking, you know, three decades ago in a, in a really uh, Christian uh, strict upbringing, it might not have been as, as clear cut as, sure. as that. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And- it's, um, you know, it, it was a, it was a different time and it was a different, and maybe that was, you know, I, I think, Today, sometimes we are too quick to just walk away from a marriage. I think sometimes you do say, hey, listen, you know, you guys did this. You need to you need to buckle down and fix this, work on it. But I don't think it is. It's a different time now than it was then. Yeah. And like I said, deacon in the church, uh, 
it was just, it was ingrained in every fiber that we had as kids growing up. And I think we, we should point out, correct me if I'm wrong, Sally's never admitted to any involvement. She's always denied that. Is that correct? No. And since she was charged, she's had no contact with us at all, which I think is a little odd. I would be begging for mercy and trying to make somebody understand. If, and everyone's different. You don't know how you would act until you're in a situation. But knowing her like we did, I think my family was all very surprised. I felt, think we felt like she would have reached out to us and said, they've got it wrong. You know, I, I, I didn't do this. Instead, she just, I, I wish quiet. she would have. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just total went dark. Basically we haven't had much conversation with her since after the funeral. She wanted her things and his things packaged completely separately by the air force. Um, even in their apartment, when they packed his things up, her things and his things were all separate. Um, and, and they had a little dog the day of the funeral. She gave the dog away. Didn't, I mean it, she was done with that part of her life. So she just disconnected from the whole situation. Everything. And and as soon as he was dead and the funeral happened, it, that was the end. Oh, and, and you mentioned whether, whether she was ultimately responsible or someone else somehow was responsible. You just want the truth. You want to know who it was and have them brought to justice. Absolutely. You bet. And and your brother, I don't want someone innocent sitting in jail. I, I would never want that. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Just, you know, I wouldn't want anyone innocent to be in jail, but, it's also not fair that someone who committed a cold-blooded murder is running around, you know, almost 34 years later, living their life. Are your parents still uh, alive? Yes. So they've had to they live are. with this, losing losing one of their children all these years and, and go through this. Yeah. Of course, their anniversary every year is Matt's date of death. Oh, that's a, that's a, very, a very painful, probably a missed uh-huh. day. For yeah, him. it is. We we always stick pretty close together on uh, my parents' anniversary. We try to go somewhere, do something as a family. It's just a it's a happy day. It's but it's a it's a sobering day as well. Most couples divorce rates already over fifty percent. It goes up even greater for a couple that's lost a child. Um, and so they've, they've stood the test of time and they, I have to say my parents never missed a beat. They, I, my mom got up every day and I had my uniforms and, you know, ready for cheerleading and volleyball and they never missed a ball game. They never missed a choir concert. And I know there were days they would have loved to have just quit, given up, but they're, they're really, really amazing people. You bring up a good point because there's always a ripple effect when something like this happens. The family members, oh, absolutely, their their lives are permanently changed, and you as you hit the nail right on the head. There's divorces and family breakups. And yeah, some some people turn to alcohol or drugs, and uh, it sure. sounds like they they as hard as it was, they stuck together and uh, as a team. So that's that's good to hear. Yeah, they did. 
you know, but at 47 years old, what happened to me when I was 14 with the death of my brother, I've always felt like my life is in two parts and it's before Matt died and after Matt died. And I just, I, you know, it's, it sounds so silly sometimes to think, to think that I think about it every day, but I do, I, I think about it every day. And when we talked about opening this case back up and, you know, and, and going forward with some things, my mom asked me seriously, she said, can you truly tell me that you would feel better if someone was in jail for this? And 100% unequivocally, yes, I would. I would feel better knowing someone has to pay for this. Yeah, because your your brother was just a kid. He had his whole life ahead of him. Yeah, so, so he's not right. he's not coming back. You know, I know that he's not coming back. Of course, it doesn't bring him back. But it he didn't die in vain either. You know, and you try you try to think all things happen for a reason. And like you said, a silver lining. I don't I don't know what it would be. I still struggle with that. Show me, you know, show me why. Where where's the good in this? What good came of this? And I struggle with that because I sure don't see it. Yeah, and and despite being so young, you know, being nineteen years old, what was his uh, Matt's legacy, or what do you think it should be? You know, he was just one of the funnest, most upbeat, happy. Um, support anybody happy truly happy for other people you know uh and, and hunting and fishing that was his life the, the outdoors and hunting and fishing and skiing you know boating he was just truly happy for anybody who could get up on skis anybody who killed a big buck anybody he was just a really good kind happy person and I, I just will never, ever forget that. Um, I, don't, I don't ever remember my brother being sad or mad or depressed. Not that we all have emotions. You know, something aggravates you, so you get mad, you get in a fight. But as far as just a person, he just was genuinely a fun guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, he would have possibly done some really good stuff, too, if, if he was allowed to live out his life. Yeah, it does. Well, and I think a divorce would have crushed him, but, you know, you bounce back from that. Yeah, especially if you can bounce you, back from that. You have the opportunity to yeah. bounce back from that. As, as, and he was young enough that he could have recovered yeah. and, and sure. had an entire new life afterwards. And if, if anyone out there, I know that after all this time and, and people forget stuff and people uh, move, pass away, whatever, but if, if there's anyone listening out there that somehow remembers this case or, or knew your brother or heard about what happened, has any kind of information or any kind of tip, who should they contact? Um. You know, Las Vegas Metro Police Department still has an open case. Um, there's actually a Detective Hefner that's assigned to the case right now. Um, and then, you know, feel free to 
I, you know, I, I wouldn't care at all if someone reached out to me, but I would say Las Vegas Metro Police. There was a lot of political, like I said, there was a lot of political stuff. Every time we'd ask for the case to be opened, it would get shut down. I touched on that a little. Oscar Goodman was her attorney. After Oscar Goodman left private practice, he became the mayor of Las Vegas. He served for many, many years. And when he left office, his wife became the mayor. Carolyn Goodman, she's still the mayor of Las Vegas. So we've often wondered if this case hasn't gotten... I mean, the mayor does sit in some authority over uh, the entire city government. We've often wondered if there wasn't some political... Even though Matt was not a political figure at all, but because it was a Goodman case, if there wasn't some kind of a link there that he didn't want this case open back up. So it's, it sounds like you're left with lingering doubts and, and lingering questions after all these years. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope somehow, some way that you do find out the truth and get answers and get justice, even if it's this many years later. And I can't thank you enough thank for, you. for sharing Matt's story with us. I can't thank you enough for, for taking interest in it. It's really, you know, it's affected a lot of lives. As my family and I have talked a lot through the years, I don't think because we were so enveloped in our intense grief at the time and what we were dealing with, I don't think we realized how it affected other people around us, our small community. I still have people who reach out to me on the day of Matt's death, the anniversary, and say, hey, love you, thinking of you today. And I'm like, gosh, it's 30 something years. I didn't even, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. It's really, it was a neat, neat community to grow up in. And they sure have offered us a lot of support over the years. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of Murder My Family. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here in two weeks with an all new episode of the Murder My Family. And just a reminder, My new podcast that I'm launching, Missing Persons, starts next Saturday. So I hope you'll tune in for the debut and check it out. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.